This is Kate Chabot with SITREP. This week, what should be done about the threat from Russia? The question is, is who is protecting the British public from interference in our democratic process? Well, in a nutshell, uh, we found no one is. America lays out its defence priorities. We're now in an era of great power competition. Uh, that means that uh, we have to prepare for high-intensity conflict going forward and that uh, we've kind of tiered countries and uh, the top tier is China, then Russia. How do you stop people leaving the armed forces because of the strain on family life? We speak to the Navy Families Federation and... The Duke of Edinburgh hands over his role as Colonel-in-Chief of Britain's largest infantry regiment. The government is considering new legislation to help counter threats from hostile states. The announcement comes after the publication of the Intelligence and Security Committee report, which said Russia had both the cyber capabilities and the malicious intent to target the UK. It claimed the government made no effort to investigate claims of Russian interference in the EU referendum and criticised intelligence agencies for not prioritising the issue. Committee member Labour's Kevin Jones says the broad of failures of government and the security services had to be addressed. So the question is, is who is protecting the British public from uh, interference in our democratic process? Well, in a nutshell, uh, we found no one is. Uh, we found the defence uh, of the UK's democratic process uh, is a hot potato. No one was prepared to accept their overall lead. This needs to be gripped now. The government has rejected the allegation that it actively avoided investigating and, speaking in the Commons, the Prime Minister Boris Johnson defended his government. There is no country in the Western world that is more vigilant in protecting the interests of this country or the international community from Russian interference. And in fact, we are going further now, introducing new legislation to protect critical national infrastructure and uh, to protect our intellectual Property. Well, joining me now is Jonathan Isle, Associate Director of the Royal United Services Institute, RUSI, and our Defence Analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Jonathan Isle, what is Russia's strategy and why does it target the UK? I doubt very much that uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has an objective of a leader he would want elected in the UK. The main objective is to make the world safe for authoritarian governments like the one of Russia. So what he's asked is creating as much havoc as possible, nurturing a cynic attitude to, towards the Western political institutions, suggesting that our system is just as rotten as his, and that therefore we have no ability to stand up to Russia. So what we have seen is a constant attempt to simply create havoc. Now, why the UK in particular? Partly because it's seen as very close to the United States, partly because it's one of the key military powers in Europe, and therefore knocking the UK out of European uh, calculations would be considered as a very useful mechanism for Russia. 
And Jonathan, we're hearing greater powers could be given to defence and intelligence organisations. Will there be a greater emphasis on combating cyber threats? Well, there's no question that there will be greater emphasis on combating cyber threats. The government uh, denies the allegations that were made by MPs that somehow the security services were not alert to what is going on. But I think most decision makers in Whitehall would accept uh, that probably we didn't pay enough attention to these things. And uh, yes, at some point, we tended to dismiss these uh, mischief-making from Russia as being inconsequential. In fact, it's very obvious now that even if the Russians were not able to change electoral results, they were able to change the political debate and they were able to nurture a sense of cynicism about our political institutions. And Christopher Lee, does this report show, as some argue, the changing nature of conflict? What we're seeing is the vulnerability of uh, systems in the United Kingdom, and including the political system in the United Kingdom, to cope with them and update the counterintelligence uh, systems. MI5 can see a problem and, and instigate an investigation. MI6 can't do that. GCHQ can't do that. And one of the considerations might be in the future as a consequence of this is whether the government says, OK, MI6 should be able to you go off and start an investigation of his own. I'm not sure MI6 would want to do that because you start getting into rubbing shoulders with the whole political uh, definitions of any investigation because every time you start an investigation, somebody has to say, hang on, is there a political edge to this? And if there is a political edge, we don't want one of the intelligence agencies going off and doing it by itself. Jonathan, there are suggestions that a foreign agents register could be introduced, which would require people working on behalf of foreign states to register their activities. Uh, other countries have similar registers, don't they? They do, and uh, the success of such measures is very limited indeed. So I think in many respects, the government is basically engaging with only one element of the story. It may be helpful to have some people in the UK registered as foreign agents or lobbyists, but uh, let's not forget that uh, the legislation existed and was very powerful in the case of the United States, and that did not prevent Russia's intelligence agencies from trying to meddle in the 2016 presidential elections. So it's only part of the answer. Many of these activities, many of these nefarious activities are are taking place online uh, from a variety of bots or indeed uh, computers that are seized and uh, transformed into uh, weapons themselves outside the jurisdiction of the United Kingdom. So I think one needs to concentrate much more on the content that is available online and on the strategies of undermining uh, UK Uh, security from the outside, not necessarily by agents who are in the UK registered as, let's say, lobbyists for Moscow. And Christopher, we've also seen a major Russia exercise recently involving 150,000 servicemen, according to Russian media. What do you make of that? In September, there's going to be a a, a massive uh, Russian exercise defending what it fears to be the weaknesses in the western, southwestern uh, districts of its, of its operations, is able to put together operations like this. And it needs to because it knows the weaknesses are. Last November, there was a meeting in Sochi where um, President Putin um, was in the chair as commander-in-chief, supreme commander-in-chief. And he um, identified about five different very strong weaknesses. 
And so this exercise that we're seeing now is to test those weaknesses. In other words, are you ready to go to war at short notice uh, or to go to the transition to war at short notice? Well, relations with China have also been in focus this week with the visit of the US Secretary of State Mike Pompeo to London and a speech by the US Defence Secretary Mark Esper to the IISS. Our national defence strategy says we are now in an era of great power competition. Uh, that means that, that we have to prepare for high-intensity conflict going forward and that we've kind of tiered countries and uh, the top tier is China then Russia and so that's why I've put particular emphasis on uh, those two regions and in particular the two commands responsible for them uh, Indo-PACOM and uh, European Command respectively. Well earlier I asked Lewis Lukens a former United States ambassador and the deputy chief of mission to London until last year for his response to the comments. Well I think it's very significant and it reflects a shift in the Trump administration's posture toward China. You'll remember that the first couple of years of the Trump administration was really focused on a trade deal and trying to work out a deal that would benefit American farmers especially and American consumers. Um, but as the election is approaching in the United States, China is becoming much more of a hot button issue. And really, both candidates are trying to outdo each other in, in, in who can be the toughest on China. So we're seeing a, a decoupling of the relationship, um, not just economically, but there's military tension and certainly on the, the sort of the technology and intellectual property theft front. Um, there's a lot of tension. And you may have seen that the U.S government announced that we're shutting down the Chinese consulate in Houston. Um, that's a really big move and a very significant move, which will almost certainly result in retaliation from the Chinese shutting down one of our consulates in China. But, but what is the danger of ratcheting up the rhetoric on China and raising tensions further? Do you accept there is a danger? Well, there is certainly a danger, and there's always a possibility that things will spin out of control, and there's always potential for mistakes. Um, there was an incident some years ago where a U.S. Navy plane was accidentally, we think, shot down over China and landed on Hainan Island. And the, the crew was kept captive for some weeks while diplomatic negotiations went on to free them. Those kinds of incidents can very quickly flare up into a more um, sort of aggressive military posture. And I think nobody wants that right now. But the difficulty is that when you're um, sort of fighting with China on trade and technology, and all these other spheres, it's very hard to separate um, an incident like that. So I think everyone is sort of hoping that things will not get too tense. The danger is, as I said, with the U.S. election, China is really becoming the whipping boy in this election. And Donald Trump, we will see more and more forceful anti-Chinese language from him. And Joe Biden, I think, will feel pressured to, to match the anti-Chinese rhetoric to show that he's also is tough and will be tough on China. So do you think in that light it doesn't really matter who wins the election, the strategy will be the same? I think the strategy during the election will be similar. And I think um, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, the, the US-Chinese US relationship won't necessarily be as easier than it is now. That was former diplomat Lewis Lukens there. Uh, Jonathan Isle, China has described the closure of its consulate in Texas as unbelievably ridiculous and said it would react with countermeasures unless the US reversed its decision. Yes, indeed. And as we've heard from the American diplomat a second ago, the reality is that this is one of the most forceful clashes between the United States and China. But it comes at the end of a very rather lengthy period of American accusations 
organizations that Chinese diplomatic installations in the United States are increasingly used in a very public way in order to collect information on the United States to spy on American military facilities and to acquire American technology, including the research uh, into a vaccine for the COVID-19 virus. So I am not sure how much it is clearly related to American electoral cycles, but as we've heard, it is something on which we can expect the future United States administration, regardless of which it is, to be much more robust. Jonathan Isle, thank you very much for your time. This is Zitrap. A new report is warning the only way to stop the armed forces from losing personnel is to invest more in them and their families, even at the expense of new equipment. The report, entitled Stick or Twist, was originally commissioned by the Prime Minister and was put together by a team led by the former Armed Forces Minister, Conservative MP Marc Francois. Well, there's been a temporary increase in retention because of the COVID pandemic. Understandably, service personnel are reluctant to leave under those circumstances. But eventually that will pass. And unless we address some of the underlying factors that are persuading people, unfortunately, to leave the armed forces, such as um, being sent on constant trawls and retrawls at short notice, such as a lack of effective childcare, then unfortunately all those uh, problems will resurface after the pandemic has passed and again we will be losing far too many people. And where do you think money needs to be spent most? Well, uh, it's not just about money, it's partly about looking at tempo and not constantly retrawling the same number of individuals all the time so that they have no really good family life. But it also means for instance, spending more money on upgrading service families' accommodation so that we provide decent, high-quality houses in which personnel and their families can live. It means spending more on childcare in order to make more childcare provision available and to extend the hours and hopefully where we can to reduce the cost. In fairness, MOD have made announcements on both childcare and accommodation in the last couple of weeks. We believe partly based on the recommendations in our report, which was commissioned by the Prime Minister. So we think the MOD are going in the right direction, in fairness, but there's still a lot more to do. Yet the Defence Secretary has told us in that light the MOD has recently introduced flexible working, £200 million of new funding to modernise accommodation, as well as plans to introduce free breakfast and after-school childcare for forces families. He says they're also working towards introducing a number of your report's recommendations, as you say. Does that satisfy you? And will the 2% pay rise help, do you think? I think the 2% pay rise will help. But what personnel told us was while pay was important, it wasn't the principal reason why they were leaving if they decided to leave. Uh, It was often a contributory factor, but not the overriding one. The biggest single factor, and this is borne out by the Armed Forces Continuous Attitude Survey, is pressure on family and personal life because of the demands of the service. So pay can help, but that is not in itself a, a silver bullet. Is the armed forces a good place to work? Yes, it is. 
Uh, I served, albeit as a reservist, during the Cold War. It's still a great place to work. It's still a great place to serve your country. When people leave the armed forces, as all the statistics show, they're immensely employable. You can still have a very worthwhile and fulfilling career in the armed forces defending the freedom on which our democracy depends. We still owe these people an immense debt, but we need to look at the pressures on them and their families, their access to childcare, the quality of their housing. If we're going to persuade these people to stay in the military, we've got to spend a bit more money on them and their families in order to improve their quality of life. And if that means we buy a few less F-35s, so be it. That was Marc Francois. Well, the team gathered evidence from a wide range of sources, including the Naval Families Federation. Paul Osborne asked its chief executive, Anna Wright, for her reaction to the report. 83% of naval families work. And I think he was really surprised to hear that, that aspect. All of the things that, that were, were raised were completely known to me, um, having done this job for five years. You say no surprises for you, but but it was perhaps surprising for those in in government or in parliament to hear some of those is it worrying that it took until now for those in parliament to realize i think they have known about these issues for quite some time and certainly for the last five years we and the other federations have been representing lots of these issues and there has been progress on some of these issues i'm pleased to say it's always helpful to have feedback and to have it heard at the highest levels for the navy 37% of us don't live near bases. We are dispersed in every county in the UK. And so we're just living our lives in the community. But we have this challenge that our partner is is away for long periods of time. And so it's that aspect that I'm keen is represented. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the government announced plans for a new childcare scheme for military families going to be piloted in, in one part of the country and then with the hope of it being rolled out more widely. Are you happy with the level of support that's on offer? It's actually my number one issue, my top 10. I am thrilled that we've got over the line and that it's recognised that this is an issue. This is the start. This is a pilot. Uh, the best news for me is that for the naval service, it will include dispersed families. They will be eligible for it. So it's by all means not total solution, but it's going a long way in terms of recognising this as, as an issue for our families. So I'm delighted. Also this week, of course, we've had the announcement of a pay rise for the armed forces of 2%. Do you think that's going to make a difference? I think that because of COVID, people will be seeing it through that lens. Um, obviously, we've had several years of a pay freeze before the recent increases. And so some people may feel actually this isn't enough, but many people will feel pleased that they've got something and that it is reasonable at this time. Would you like to see those kind of rises continue? Because obviously what we do know is that at some stage, all of this money that's being spent is going to have to be recovered. That might mean cuts for departments. That might mean cuts for the MOD. Yes, I think the time of this report is important because one of the the first recommendation is about not relying on an economic downturn. I think it's expected that retention won't be an issue possibly for the next couple of years. And so there may be a temptation to take an eye off the ball in terms of retention and focus on other things. And I think that would be a mistake while there is buoyancy in the service in terms of manpower numbers, there's an opportunity to look at it and to make the changes that are necessary so that in the longer term, 
retention won't be an issue when we come out of the economic downturn. That was Anna Wright and listening to that was Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, Anna Wright is warning there that retention shouldn't become less of a focus now we're in an economic downturn. I don't think it is. 2017, so three, three and a half years ago, in fact, the chief of the defence staff himself, General Nick Carter, said he thought that retention was the biggest problem that they had to pay attention to. You can send a load of guys around and they look at the walls and they see mildew on the walls and they say the beds are not very good. These are largely for people that are uh, where they're serving on duty. It is not a question of families. And people in the past have left for family reasons. Where does your child want to go to school? Is there a disruption in the family anyways? There are families all, all over the place. But I think certainly that this particular chief of the defence staff has got retention right at the top of his list on how you keep your army and Navy and the Air Force running. Now, Exercise Merlin Storm has been taking place in Wales and the southwest to prepare troops who are going to be deployed to the Caribbean. The exercise takes place on a regular basis, but this year it's focused on the personnel changeover for those who could be helping with humanitarian relief during hurricane season. Run by Commando Helicopter Force, the skill of the air and ground crews is tested so they can be ready for any deployment. Bryony Williams has more. This is the sound of a Merlin helicopter. Raw Marines are practicing fast roping out of it as part of exercise Merlin Storm. Because on any deployment, Commando Helicopter Force needs to be able to protect itself. All elements of CHF are put through their paces for any eventuality. You can't land and refuel helicopters in uh, isolated high threat areas without being able to protect yourself. Captain Paul Fleet is motor transport officer for Commando Helicopter Force. So as the Marines, we are commandos first and we deliver the protection to the battlefield helicopters. And it's a, a unique capability um, that we work very hard to uphold. Which is why identifying and defeating the enemy on exercises like this in South Wales and across the South West takes place. It is difficult and that's why an exercise like this is so important so that the ground elements can work in tandem with the air elements and work out how that communication link happens in real time. Wildcat helicopters manoeuvring under slung loads. That's just one of those air elements. This exercise includes personnel who have just returned from Op Caribbean and those who may be deployed there for humanitarian relief in hurricane season. Experience and knowledge can be exchanged. To have an exercise like this together, we do, we do periodically, and the focus, obviously, on humanitarian aid, disaster relief, or HADA operations. Lieutenant David Houghton-Barnes is a second operations officer for Commando Helicopter Force. Practicing underslung load lifting for aid, uh, practicing fueling, cereals, uh, reconnaissance. It's getting everyone together and practicing it in one place. That's, that's probably the key part where you get skill fade. So what's it like flying a wildcat on deployment? So the Caribbean in particular is quite a challenging environment to fly in. Uh, it's clearly very hot. Which, this um, is Captain Tom Arkell, Royal Marine, a pilot for 847 Naval Air Squadron. So the hotter it is, the poorer the, the engine performance, and that's typical across any helicopter. So when you're working uh, in particularly hot climates or even high climates, so when you're, you might be up at uh, altitude at four or 5,000 feet, it degrades the engine performance so that you're approaching your power limitations um, now, the helicopter is well configured to operate when it's hot and high. However, you just have to be a bit more careful, a bit more gentle on the controls to ensure that you don't exceed any tolerances. 
Whether you're a Chinook, Wildcat or Merlin pilot, in charge of logistics or any other part of the team working on Op Caribbean, it's all about being prepared. Here's Captain Paul Fleet again. In my career, I have been involved in humanitarian aid operations in the past, but they're all different. They all have their own unique nuances and the Caribbean will be, will be no different, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I will be taking the mobility troop out there to provide the force protection and the tactical refuelling operations that are required. Exercise Merlin Storm may be over, but for some it's just the beginning of using their skills where they are needed most. Bryony Williams reporting. A cross-party group of MPs has said this week it was astonished the government didn't plan for the economic devastation a pandemic could cause. In response, a government spokesman said, we regularly test our pandemic plans, allowing us to rapidly respond to this unprecedented crisis and protect the NHS. Meg Hillier chairs the Public Accounts Committee and says lessons could be learned from the armed forces. There is a lot more joining up that can be done. And if you think about how the military do things like procurement, um, adapt things. There's a lot that could potentially be learned there. You need people who can act fast and make decisions and deliver well. And actually, obviously, the armed forces have very good expertise in logistics. So we see this with the Nightingale hospitals and the delivery of those. That was done, you know, with a lot of military support. So there is perhaps something that government could learn from. Government has now introduced actually a new decision-making structure. Uh, but it's, you know, sometimes you can have structures that can take the place of actually delivering. And one thing that the armed forces are very good is at delivering. Many reservists have been involved in the response, including Surgeon Commander Richard Graham, a Royal Navy radiologist who has twice been deployed to Afghanistan. He's a consultant and the Deputy Medical Director of the Royal United Hospitals Bath NHS Trust and helped with the planning for the Bristol Nightingale Hospital. I spoke to him earlier and asked him how his role has changed. So Kate, normally I work as a radiologist two days a week and a leader three days a week and I converted all my time to management and leadership in order to devote enough capacity to solving the problems that COVID faced. And how did it affect the way you worked in, in the trust? So that meant I was involved in lots of uh, regular meetings. We had a gold command every day, which I was a member of, where we evaluated the uh, strategies for modifying the way we delivered our healthcare to focus on the COVID-19 patients. You served two tours in Afghanistan on Operation Herrick. What did you take from that experience which helped you in dealing with this pandemic? I suppose the uh, similarities were that this was healthcare that we'd never delivered before. So when I went to Afghanistan, I'd never delivered trauma care quite like that. So I was used to delivering care that was completely alien to me. And also, I suppose, there was a small amount of personal risk for both me and my team. Uh, that was faced by COVID and also in Afghanistan. So I was used to working in that kind of environment and leading people through that sort of situation. Obviously, it has been a very stressful time for all health workers. How do you manage to deal with that stress? I suppose you focus on your patients because they're the most important people and trying to do the best for them and also just keep your own health up to speed with you know, regular exercise and relaxing with your family, but it you know, has been difficult. It's often said that people like yourselves have been putting yourselves on the front line. Did you ever have any doubts about the risks? Not really. I'd experienced greater risks, I think, deploying to Afghanistan. Um, I was more concerned about the people in my team and the further, you know, wider staff throughout our hospital. Um, I was focused on them and getting them through the 
kind of unknown situation. But fundamentally, as healthcare professionals, we all focus on our patients and that's what gets us through these sorts of situations. And what is the status now of the Bristol Nightingale? It hasn't been needed so far, has it? Yeah, so I was involved in selecting medical staff to support Bristol Nightingale from Bath. So Bristol Nightingale was supported by all the surrounding hospitals. And then together we've worked as a coalition to work out how best to use the hospital. So at the moment, it's mothballed, ready to be used uh, at a few days' notice if we get a, a further surge of COVID-19. But we don't need it currently. Yeah, you say it's mothballed, it's ready. Are there any preparations that need to be made in case there is a second wave? So the initial staff are already trained and they're ready to go uh, should the balloon go up, as it were. And there's equipment sitting in warehouses ready to be deployed into the hospital, ready for action. So it can be activated very quickly. And how would you put this, this experience during the pandemic in the context of your career? How would you place it? I, I think it's definitely a, a career-defining moment, rather like deploying to Afghanistan similarly different and similarly challenging. It's something that I've enjoyed being part of, but I'd be quite happy not to do again. That was Commander Richard Graham. This week, the Duke of Edinburgh came out of retirement to hand over his role as Colonel-in-Chief of Britain's largest infantry regiment, the Rifles, to the Duchess of Cornwall. We would like to wish you fair winds and following scenes. Christopher, he's been associated with the Rifles and its earlier regiments for almost 70 years. What has this association meant to him, do you think? Well, not the bugle playing, anyway. The connection is military for the whole royal family. Prince Philip was born in Corfu, and it was during a revolution. And what does he do when he comes as a refugee, a royal refugee, into mainland Europe and Western Europe? He joins the Navy. He has been military all his life. He just looks the part. They all do. Watch the royal family. When they bought uniforms, they walk differently. Their instinct is be in, in, in the military. And that is it from me, Kate Chippo, and from Christopher Lee and all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> 